Hi, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about career, community, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. In a little while, I'll be talking with artist and educational designer, Eric Hamilton. But first, a review of the book, Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, by Soria Shamali. Shamali is a writer, critic, and activist who writes about gender absurdities and inclusivity, among other things. Unlike a lot of books I've been reading recently that came out pre-COVID, this one has not lessened in topic or impact. And the impact is tough indeed. It's actually difficult for me to wrap my mind around the topic of this book because It encompasses a half century of messages from parents, teachers, religion, media, workplace, extended family, in-laws, universities, you name it, about anger being just bad. I can't speak to whether, as a woman, I've gotten more or less of a message about that because I only have a woman's experience, although I've observed that my anger was unacceptable a lot of times and men's anger was maybe not acceptable but tolerated. I can't say that I've done a great job around this issue with my kids. Their anger toward me or toward their siblings pretty much always seemed misplaced or Like if they were angry at me because they couldn't do something they wanted to do, like, sure, be angry. I won't let you eat all the cookies in the box. I always sort of approached it like it was something they would have to grow out of. And I never had any effective teaching in how to self-regulate. I had a lot of lessons in how to repress and bottle it up and how to explode when you couldn't bottle it up anymore but nothing else. And of course, exploding was something you saved for your own family in your own house. Never at parents, never at work, not at school, and of course, not out in the world. With a lot of therapy, deep work, and some online community, and quite honestly, TikTok. This is not the case for me anymore. But what I have done the last bunch of years is try to figure out where my energy was turning in on myself, where anger was actually harming me. And learning to see anger as a literal red flag telling me that something was out of joint, that anger was a literal flare from me that I was in a powerless position. And what I would do for years was find a kind of pressure valve release in making a narrative that gave me comfort. So like seeking out other people who felt the same way to see if my anger was valid. And then complaining and commiserating with those people as a way of releasing the pressure. And in the same transformative year, Someone held me accountable for complaining, essentially like the book The Power of Meaning by Emily F. Stani-Smith that I reviewed several weeks ago described it. I kept creating contaminated narrative. It felt really compulsive. I didn't have other narrative. At almost the same time, I went to a therapist in Dublin who said, 
You know, when things go badly, you react appropriately, but so late, like in act three with people who are, have already demonstrated a lack of goodwill. It's interesting. You don't seem to recognize any of what's happening in act one or act two. Why is that? And between those two things, I started realizing that somewhere deep down in myself, I was sending up SOSs all the time, but instead of paying attention, I repressed it or relieved it or comforted it, anything but listening to it until the complete train wreck had occurred. It was a real toxic, self-destructive, unsustainable version of self-regulation. And even with this information, I've looked at anger, mine and others, and said, do I really want to spend energy on getting angry? It's exhausting. And rage changes all sorts of your internal bodily responses. So if you get comfort from rage, or if it's sort of your final go-to emotion or go-to behavior, it means you're getting comfort from fight. And honestly, you could also be getting it from flight or freeze or fawn. They're all hormonal responses. They are not good for us long-term. And I wonder all the time what kind of long-term damage I've had from what amounts to a 24-7, 365 drip of cortisol and inflammation. At this point, it is what it is, I guess. But I now wonder whether, at least starting now, it's more avoidable. So this book was an interesting choice because it doesn't actually talk about avoiding it. It talks about experiencing it. Shemily references the GDP, and I'm so glad because that was a it was a strange moment actually when I was in grad school because the teacher that brought it up was a substitute our economics teacher pulled out at the last second so we got a columnist for a big Dublin paper who was not an economist and he in fact wasn't a teacher either he kind of had this fantasy that he would have a classroom full of people just adoring him and did not reckon with the fact that when you teach a broad range of adults of different ages, that's not going to be the case. But one of the surprising things that he did bring up, and I was grateful for it, was the massive limitation of the GDP. Our gross domestic product as a reflection of the labor that is done in the United States and worldwide should be counted as twice what it is because it never includes the work that is mostly performed by women. If you take care of your own child, if you take care of your own elderly parents, None of that is included in the GDP. It's as if it's invisible. It doesn't count. If you pay someone else to do it, suddenly it shows up as productivity. Just that. Just if we, do, if we talk about nothing else but that and the inherent unfairness of that, it's an entire topic on its own. And not acknowledging it 
just to ourselves, just privately even, is a huge disservice to the enormous burden, enormous work that women do. And work is not necessarily a burden, but work that is done invisibly, that's a burden. She describes raising boys and in particular has an example of when her own daughter was a very young child and there was a boy in her class who delighted in destroying what she created. And when anyone tried to hold this kid accountable, all the grown-ups, his parents, the teacher, all were like, yeah, he has to learn how to regulate. But the assumption then, and again, burden, was on the daughter to become the conduit for his learning to self-regulate, that she had to tolerate, as a very small child, her own frustration, her own creativity, being destroyed as a price to pay because there was a boy who hadn't learned anything yet, instead of anyone teaching and expecting him to do better. And so she says, by default, he was allowed and encouraged to control the environment at the expense of girls. Boys are not expected to control themselves, and girls are treated as resources for boys' development. Children in the United States show, I think, the widest gaps in gender on self-regulation. So it really has nothing to do with children. If you can find a narrower gap in another part of the world, then that has nothing to do with humans, and it has everything to do with socialization and early learning. But I'm also going to say later learning. There's a great summation. A lot of times it's really helpful to just have the language. I grew up in a time, and I think it is still very much that time, certainly my kids grew up in this, where people would say, oh, Teenage girls are just more mature. And they'd say it to girls to sort of give leeway to boys' lack of maturity. And they would never say, look to her for leadership. Girls mature earlier. If it's true, and it does seem to be true, that girls mature earlier, how is that not the position that they should hold? in high schools across the country. Instead, they're sent home or dressed in bags or humiliated for somehow making the boys around them distracted or worse, the male teachers or worse, female teachers being afraid that they will make male teachers and boys distracted and policing girls' self-expression because, again, they have to be this conduit. The world can't change fast enough for me. This book reminded me of how in grad school, which is not even three years ago, a bunch of us got together to make a professional women's group out of our class. It was totally voluntary. And a couple of guys asked if they could come in and be allies. And we said yes. And they were well-meaning people. They're perfectly fine human beings. But our meetings were derailed almost instantly between them and then the one or two women who said they had never, ever in their entire lives had 
any negative gender experiences. And then the guys who wanted more than anything for us to just adjust everything we said to make them maximally comfortable and talk in ways that didn't make them feel like odd men out. They would say things like, guys will never listen to you unless you change how you talk about your experiences, which turned very quickly into don't talk about your experiences, which led very quickly to never talk about your experiences. Guys don't want to listen to that. So only talk about things they want to listen to. It is one of the things I'm super grateful to TikTok about because it is a very fast medium, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, three minutes, that's taught me better how to identify and respond to these kinds of shutdowns than I was three years ago. And I think if I had a time machine, I would be much quicker on it to say, you're not hearing what's happening here and either you be quiet and listen and learn or out the door you go this isn't your place but boy and i'm even as i say that it is boy <laughs> they didn't like being told this wasn't their forum they didn't even like the insinuation that it wasn't a place for them to lead and they felt very deeply that just by showing up and giving us an hour one afternoon they were doing us a huge favor but a favor that is like rewrite everything for us is really what we were objecting to in the first place. And the group ultimately just evaporated because no one could figure out any real point to it. And that's too bad. There was definitely a need for it and we couldn't figure out how to navigate it. When Shamali talks about anger management, I thought a lot about my emerging thoughts about hustle culture and self-help and she's got excellent things to say about that and the concept of ego i've been told my whole life that ego is something to get rid of much like anger according to sort of peaceful new agey buddhist style approaches and that it's the source of unhappiness and i've always had sort of an allergic reaction to this because it feels like it's a message to those whose ego was pumped up by their world intersectionally by gender, race, income, etc., but that it's not at all helpful for those who have been told their very self is something to be ashamed of, something to be cut out of their bodies and minds in order to be more like the dominant normal. Same with anger management, which is what she talks about. It feels like something meant to instruct those who are already at the top of everything to deal with their toxicity of being violent rather than to those who need the engine of anger, who have a right to their anger to fight for justice or to be heard or to be seen at all. And I feel like even reading the book, I'm still in the middle of muddling through this. Anger is still just an emotion. The last quarter of the book needs everything that preceded it. It's really a phenomenal read. But the last quarter is also where I found the most hope and usefulness. She goes through assessments to reframe anger and to talk about it. Develop self-awareness. How do you get angry? How do you feel about it in yourself and others? Distinguish anger, assertiveness, and aggression 
and understand that all three are tools women can use effectively. That was really interesting because I've been taught that of the three of them, assertiveness is the only one allowed. And even that one, very carefully, it will look bad on you as a woman. And I've had that explicitly said to me. Be brave. Stop pleasing people. A very hard instruction for many of us. Male and female, of course, but whereas men are taught to please people, they still, they still have structural social forms in place where it's not required of them. And it is almost always required under almost all circumstances from women. And I know lots of men won't believe this, but I also know lots of men don't really listen to women. And I would recommend reading this book and reading The Invisible Woman, which I'm going to review in a couple weeks, and just hearing it. Your mothers, your sisters, your daughters, your wives, your aunts, your cousins, your grandmothers. If you are a safe enough human being to talk to, they will tell you this. And if they are able to talk about it. But if you are not, or if they are not, you will not hear these stories and you may write them off. Take deliberate care. Set clear boundaries, something that needs lots of practice. Ask for help. And she has a scathing look at self-help, which is totally worth reading. See your anger. This is huge. Not only as a possible symptom, but also a way to recover yourself. And I have to give that a lot more thought and examination because I have never been encouraged to see anger in that way. Rethink forgiveness. Shamali mentions it, but without the assistance of the three-part apology, and it's too bad because that would really help here. I won't go into it. I occasionally do workshops on it. I will say quickly they are express remorse, be specific about what you did, and specific about what you'll do differently in the future. And without those three things, forced forgiveness, it's not a relationship healer. It's also not a self-healer. It's just a faux apology. Teach people around you to name and talk about anger, but also be aware of gender. And she says, talking openly about anger also gives adolescent girls opportunity to participate and think about how they are able to shape their own environments. For boys, it requires different lessons. For example, about shame, empathy, and male entitlement. Shamali suggests that people consider a therapist. Honestly, anyone struggling with anger should, if it is at all possible, find a therapist and keep looking until they find one that helps. I do love that she dives deep into the issue of therapy, though, because not all therapists are good. And while she's on it, religious authorities are not going to get you better. They've had thousands of years to get good at this, and as a rule, they have not. Churches and religious figures, whether in person or as a structure, almost universally demand forgiveness and double down on lack of accountability. And for this last one, she uses the example of U.S. gymnastics Larry Nasser, the whole mess around him, 
to show how one of his victims, Rachel Den Hollander, was just re-victimized by going to a pastor instead of a therapist, saying, It is with deep regret that I say the church is one of the worst places to go for help. But of course, that cannot be a surprise anymore with example after example after example of infuriating predatory behavior. Cultivate body confidence. These are some more things you can do. Sports, movement, self-defense, learning how to yell, learn how to take risks. Take your anger to work, which is quite frankly part of boundary making. Organize, improve communication, and redirect anger to get stuff done, which is very satisfying, very fulfilling. Cultivate communities and accountability. Making and joining social movements, using social media to connect and build. Change binary is another great intersectional part of this book. Looking for hidden and marginalized identities and figuring out how to support them more and get them heard more. And reject the false dichotomy of reason versus emotion and the gender load that that nonsense carries. Trust other women. We are all exactly like other girls because other girls are awesome. In that grad school group, the guys were irritating, sure, but the couple of women who negated all other women's experience were the ones that really wasted everyone's time. Accept a desire for power and notice its opposite, powerlessness. Shamali talks about tears being vulnerable and signifying powerlessness, but one of the things I love about defending crying is that, in fact, we do our best thinking out of crying. We re-regulate ourselves using tears, and we need to learn to be way more tolerant of it for all ages. She says, quote, Anger has a bad rap, but it is actually one of the most hopeful and forward-thinking of all our emotions. It begets transformation, manifesting our passion and keeping us invested in the world. It is a rational and emotional response to trespass, violation, and moral disorder. It bridges the divide between what is and what ought to be, in between a difficult past and an improved possibility. Anger warns us viscerally of violation, threat, and insult. There's tons of reasons to read this book, but this one kept popping up to me. If you are raising or teaching boys, or if you were a boy yourself at one time, you owe it to all of society and to your future relationships to read this book. This society favors boys, but it also does them no favors, removing them from an enriching, interesting, emotionally regulated world and it re renders them unable to have meaningful long-term healthy sustaining relationships
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about career, community, and creativity. Next up, part one of a conversation with artist Eric Hamilton. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is awesome. So you can talk about the three topics we, we talk about are career, community, and creativity. And for some people, that Venn diagram is a circle. For other people, it diverges. You can pick one and uh, tell us what you do. Well, um, let's let's start with creativity, because I think that to me is sort of like the crux of all things, because I think, I mean, you, as you say, everything's a bit interstitial. Mm. And I think the glue to all of this is creativity, because whether you're being creative with your hands or your imagination or trying to solve uh, something that's not working in your your sort of like workflow it all kind of blends, and I, I try to I try to employ this interesting combination of inside the box, outside the box thinking. Because sometimes you have to be inside the box and stay in there, and sometimes you have to just, as one of my friends would say, kick the door down and and just open up mm-hmm. possibilities. But um, mm. so creativity. Uh, thank you for talking about my doodling. I I was an, uh, I loved <laughs> art as a kid. I love comic books. I loved uh, drawing. I love storytelling through uh, uh, artwork. And so the funny thing was is like that was always sort of like a peripheral thing in my early childhood and uh, through high school education. I never really focused that as like I'm going to go to college and be an artist. And it wasn't until I had this interesting epiphany in the guidance counselor's office where I had kind of focused on social studies as being my gateway into uh, collegial life. And I realized I didn't want any career or association with a professional thing that would be interesting enough for me to do uh, to go to college. So I sat there struggling to think, well, well, what what am I going to do? It's college. This is life. And you know, it's all those big things you think about when you're like uh, 17 going on 18. And uh, I, 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 and the answer was right on, on all of my paper covered books for every class, <laughs> every doodle, every sketch, every comic book character that I filled up on those brown paper things. And so I go into the guy in the counselor's office and says, like, I know exactly what kind of school I want to go to. And, and uh, he said, Mr. Smith, I remember correctly. And he said, that's awesome. What what are you thinking about? Like, I want to go to art school. That, that's tremendous i've never seen some passion i say i know and he says like so so where's your portfolio and then i just kind of like my jaw dropped because <laughs> i oh, no. working towards that and he slowly gets a story out of what's going on here and he, and he understands and he says well your best bets right now are state colleges and community colleges because the only kind of place will accept you without a portfolio and you really don't have time to build up what's going to be needed for a college portfolio and this is the season where students go to colleges and show them so Long story short, I ended up going to Greenfield Community College, which is a fabulous foundation uh, community college. And I it's it's a terrific place. Wonderful. Yeah. And I lucked upon. Yeah, I lucked upon being in one of those years where the entire uh, class I was in, we all were a cohesive unit. We grew together. We learned from each other. The teachers marveled at this. It's just one of those nurturing environments. Couldn't have been a better way for me to 
actively jump into something that I, I love to do on the side was making a sort of like a, a life decision. And mm. but it's, it's community college is two years. And there was always the plan to do at least four years of college. And so uh, I had found out that they had a, a special scholarship with the School of Visual Arts in New York City. They sent one student a year uh, to School of Visual Arts with a half tuition scholarship. And I, and I worked, huh. worked myself hard on my portfolio for that. And I got it. And I got to go to New York City. And that a whole long chapter in my life I don't want to go into right now. But, <laughs> but when I got into New York, I, I learned some valuable lessons. So I became the sort of like the, the hotshot art kid at community college. We were all hotshots there. No one was really above huh. But I, I felt special and proud because I got the scholarship. And I get there and I had to do this portfolio review with the illustration department chair who ran the comic book cartooning department. Another reason why I wanted to go to the School of Visual Arts because they had that. And, right. And, uh, he looked at my work and it was very, um, it was more fine arts oriented. It was, you know, foundation program. And I wasn't focusing as much on structure and drawing and painting for semi-realism or realism, which is a, not all of, but a, a, a good part of some of the illustration programs. And the department head was very, very a realist. And he looked at my work and he said, kid, you can't draw. Now, you know, that's kind of a Oof. blow to draw up on someone. And I don't think that was the best way to deliver the message, but he did round out what my planned curricula was and got me into some really good teachers and classes. And so that I, I thank him for that. I, I curse him for doing that to me, but I thank him as well. So mm. every that that was a, a big life lesson. And, and you know, it started blossoming some more. I loved it. I was really getting into it. I was creative. I met all these great people in the cartoon department. I was seeing my interest and my uh, learning the skills go up in an upward curve. I was like, oh, this is great. I, gotta, I can't stop. If I stop, right. this is my this is the best time I'm going to learn. Because they tell you that. It's like you look, you really stop super learning, like grabbing tons of like new ideas and stuff like that at a certain age. I don't know who said that. But I heard that from someone. <laughs> Maybe not true, but that's what I heard. And so I thought it would be a shame if I stopped. So I decided to go in the uh, MFA illustration department there. And it's a very good. Oh, wow. Yeah, very good illustration program. So I put together my portfolio, took pictures of my work. And I, and I knew the department chair because he taught an undergraduate class. And I got rejected. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh God! Oh yes, it was so, it was so much momentum. I was like, and then oh wait, oh wait, <laughs> there's more. Um, so <laughs> I'm in my my dorm room at the Sloan House YMCA. It was pretty much about like a, a seven by ten foot room, and I'm sitting in the dark, two in the morning, scrambling in my brain, wondering what to do because you know I put all my eggs in one basket, and then I I did the second smart thing I did with uh, my arts education, and I asked myself, well, why was I doing this? What was the point of this? It wasn't to get an MFA originally. It was to keep going. And I said, well, mm. if that's the point, you just need to take more drawing and painting classes at the school that you like. So then huh. the next day, I go to my advisor, Dawn. I tell her what happened. She knew I was trying for the program. She was sorry that I didn't get in. I said, but I've I, I, I got another idea. She says, I didn't know you uh, were going for any other colleges. Said, no, 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 no. I want to come back here. <laughs> and she's like, but, but you're graduating. No, but I want to come back here. <laughs> you want to come back as a non-matriculated student? I said, yes, that is what I want oh, wow. to do. And I will, I will create, it'll be, an, I got a cartooning degree. I'll follow the illustration path, path, which is a little different and different teachers 
and I'll round out my drawing and my painting and my picture making and all that stuff the way I would like to get it to. And so she said, okay, but you're going to have to talk to the department chair. This is the person who said to me, I could not draw. You can imagine the relationship we had. Oh, God. No, it, it was fine. It was kind of like this interesting sort of like arch nemesis kind of thing. It was kind of funny, actually. So I go to, <laughs> I go to his office, and he's, he, he, of course, tersely asks, what are you doing here? Because <laughs> we know each other. <laughs> and I tell him what I want to do. He says, why are you talking to me about this? He says, well, Don says I need your permission. If it gets you out of my office, get out. And so I go <laughs> And, you know, at my graduation, he said, good luck next year. It was all in good fun. It was like a, a banter sort of thing. It was, I, I look back fondly <laughs> at this nemesis of mine. It pushed me. Yeah. Every superhero needs a villain. Every superhero needs a villain. So, <laughs> so then uh, I, I had this interesting dilemma. It's like, okay, uh, I had pretty much spent out what funds I had for college through inheritances, uh, contributions from family, things that I earned on the summers and stuff like that. So for this, I got to get a student loan. So I applied mm-hmm. the loans all summer. They're trying to figure out how to deal with me. Uh, it seems like it's going to go through. I go back to school. I'm in the uh, program. It's going to plan. I'm growing. I'm learning it's exactly what I needed to do. And about halfway through October, in one of my visits to the um, student loan office, and they all got to know me, we were friendly, all of a sudden they were very ice cold and said, like, you can't get a, a student loan, you're a non-matriculated student, like somebody had laid down ah. the rules. And I was like, whoops. <laughs> ah. So I go to visit Luis Sita, who was the bursar, uh, and who I also got to know. You always get to know, your, <laughs> these pe- always get to know the administration people in good terms for them. That's a, that's a uh, thing everyone should learn. Yeah. And I, I said to, I said to him, I was like, look, fact of the matter is it's half of the semester. I bought the semester. I have to pay for this. So can we strike up a deal? Can I finish this off? I'll go home. We'll create a payment plan. I'll pay it off. And he, he, he said, yeah, you, you pretty much bought it. There's not much we can do. You might as well at least get what you paid for. So that happened. And I got wow. I got the <laughs> I got the uh, through the semester and I got in the uh, the big student show in the illustration department, the, which was happened to be sequential art. And uh, there weren't many comic book students who got in there, but as an illustration student, I did painted versions of panels, and that worked. It was a little thing about uh, pollution and its effect going down a river. And so that meant I was coming back to New York in February to go to the show. Okay. So. I come back uh, February after working in uh, Northampton at three different jobs because it was 1991 and the recession was in full gear. So nobody had full-time work. So, you know, I was, yeah. I was a dishwasher here, a salad prep there, a house cleaner there, you know, doing what you could. But I was paying my bills, anything to, to the school. And I go out there and my friends put me up in the dorm and I go to the show and there's the department chair of the MFA program, who I said I knew as a teacher. He says, "Ah, oh, Eric, huh. yes, yeah, good to see you. Nice work." And I and I, I stood there and, huh. and I said, "Like, do you think it's worth me bothering to try to apply for the MFA program?" And he just says, well, "It'll be a damn shame if you didn't." And he just turned around and walked. Oh. And that was it. I went home. Oh. And I was <laughs> working on some paintings because I was still doing art when I came back to Northampton. The fever was still there. I finished up some paintings. I got a professional photographer. I rewrote my essay. I had a professional writer review it with me. I just made sure this time I am getting in, and I got in. Mm. Oh wow! And and that was a great experience too. Um, I 
I really, everything up to then was more about craft than, yeah. than my, my voice. I mean, my voice was in my work, but I really worked hard in my MFA program to get my voice. And that was, that was a good thing for me. So mm. my arts education, of course, brought me to New York city. And, and then I had to find a job, which I didn't want to live like an artist. And I had a part-time job in a uh, educational publishing facility, Leanna Lanson mm. Inc. And I was hired on full-time afterwards. And it was fine because I could be making things. We were making uh, educational products and, and helping people develop educational products. So the, the process of making things, which is very important to me, it's about making things. That- so what does that mean? What are, what are just, just a quick footnote, educational products, what are those? I, it, it runs the gamut. I've uh, through that company, I have done everything from a White House CD-ROM virtual uh, tour, virtual tour. So you mm-hmm. go uh, through these uh, these old QTVR spinning rooms where you can look around and touch hotspot objects and learn about the paintings and the presidents and stuff like that. Oh, okay. To yep. uh, box set for the American Heart Association about heart health. To okay. literacy programs with Scholastic. Wow, it's it's kind of like a lot of different things. It's basically, it was I didn't really work on the basils, the textbooks. I worked on the supplemental resources that educators would use in the classroom. Got it. Okay, yeah. So I just wanted a a, a quick little detour down there. But yeah, you were saying about making stuff. Making stuff, and there's and you know in that industry you work with graphic designers, you work with writers, you work with. Uh, teachers who review the products and and i have to say my mentor i can't just call her my my you know my boss she was much much more than that she's she was tremendous uh, influence in my life she taught me a lot of great things and and in my (laughs) my job interview when i was in school for the part-time job she said to me because i guess the interview went well for me i'm like just looking for a part-time job i didn't know what i was getting into here she said you stick with me kid i'll turn you into a publisher First of all, I don't know how to decompress that statement. It is probably one of the <laughs> meaningful, impactful statements I've ever had. And then she kept to her word. She wow. She mentored me like nobody's business, and a good mentor, it's, great mentor. It sounds like such a Hollywood like you stick with me, kid, and I'll make you a star. It really does, and you, and you know what? It made me a mentor. Because I've been mentoring people mm. throughout my life in different ways. I had a, a, a colleague at the Museum of Natural History. We'll get to that segment of my life in a second. Mm. I mean, his daughter, Brooke, was uh, in middle school and wanted to get some more drawing down, more drawing ability. And so uh, I agreed for uh, a bottle of whiskey every month or something every <laughs> month that I would spend a few hours a couple times, couple times a month, and that was very enjoyable because I really wanted to make Brooke feel like this is a creative space. This is about Brooke's development, not about my development. Mm. I will talk about how certain techniques work and what is usually more successful than others, but I tried to to have Brooke put their voice into it. Right. And not, right. not with pressure. I wanted to be a very and 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 Brooks doing great. Brooks in uh, uh, an art college right now, and I'm not sure what media Brooke is pursuing. Mm. So I haven't I haven't mm. spoken to 
broke probably since the pandemic anyway. So, mm. uh, but you know, we'll catch up. We'll get there. We'll get there. But yeah, back back to uh, educational publishing. So I worked in this great nurturing environment with Leanna for about five years, and Leanna wanted to close down the business to take a job at Time for Kids, which is a uh, kind of a weekly reader through Time Magazine uh, offices. Oh yeah, yeah. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's, you know, it's a lot to run a business and, uh, there were a lot of reasons for her to take that position it was a great one. So closing on the business and, uh, we had several months to complete our, our projects for our clients, including the White House CD-ROM. And one of our clients was the Museum of Natural History. They were doing a magazine on biodiversity for the new hall of biodiversity. And I was working with, Sharon Simpson and Nancy Heckinger in the Museum's Education Department's National Center for Science, Literacy, Education, and Technology. And yes, that's a mouthful. Wow, yeah, that goes on. Yeah. <laughs> institutional. And yeah. so come like a couple months before the we are dissolving the uh business, I could start putting my resume out. And it was very, it was a very surreal experience. I, I, I don't liken it to anything. The, the reason it was it went like this is because I developed so many remote relationships with people on the phone, developing things in different parts mm. of, with people in different parts of the country, uh, with the White House in D.C., uh, Autodesk, uh, the software company in California. Oh yeah. And even the museum yeah. is like you know we were I worked. I, I worked across from the Flatiron Building. I, my window faced the Flatiron Building. So I'm down <laughs> by the Flatiron Building. Museum of Natural History is like, you know, four or whatever miles, five miles north. So we're working remotely. And all of all the interviews I, I went to were people who I knew. So they weren't looking at my resume. They were just telling me what's available for me, which is kind of oh, that's so nice. an odd situation. And I, and I, the museum's, position was more interesting, less pay, but more interesting. And I yeah. also knew that some of the bigger publishing companies were going to be 50 or more hour a week jobs because that's just, oh yeah. And I, and I wanted life. I wanted not to yeah. get so caught up in the job that I was missing out on the rest of everything else. So and according to Leanna, she knew all of these people because we worked with her. They basically debated about who's getting me as well on a phone call. <laughs> That's the story. I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't on the phone call. But uh, I went to the museum and I came on as a sort of a project assistant for curriculum they were developing on biodiversity because biodiversity was the, uh, the big thing that year because they were opening the hall. And then I moved into more of an administration facility job called an office manager, business manager type job there, which was sort of okay. straying from the past. And this group, the National Center for Science, Literacy, Education, Technology, their specific thing was making educational resources using the collections, the exhibits, the scientific research at the museum and making them available as uh, supplemental resources, both online and in print. So that was okay. interesting. But while I was there, they knew I was an artist and they started using me on their website. And I was doing a bunch of illustrations for uh, several things, uh, a curriculum, uh, several different curricula on Antarctica. What was some of the other ones? We had um, 
trying to think some of the other projects. There was a lot of them. Oh, but the big project, really the biggest project that, that was interesting was the, the kids' website, Ology. So if you go to, you type in Ology, you'll get the Museum of Natural History's uh, website for kids. And my... O-L-O-G-Y, just like the end bit for all this... Correct. Biology. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Study of. That hence the... Okay. Yeah. I love it. So I got to do a whole bunch of illustrations for the kids' website, and that was fun because I was doing children's illustrations. It was it was a very cartoony graphic style. It was fun. And then I started, uh, and I did, you know, I, I'd hand draw them and scan them and, and clean them up in Photoshop, color them in Photoshop. And then I learned Illustrator, and I started doing uh, things that they could do with more vector graphics, games and stuff like that, and that was fun. I had actually done a, uh, a game that's no longer available where you basically, when scientists are uh, trying to figure out species population count, they'll grid off a place like in a reef and they'll count the number of fish that are within them as they go by. It's a very... Okay. And so we did sort of an interactive version of that. So I had to create all these uh, digital assets, <laughs> different fish, <laughs> different speeds and two different environments, uh, mangrove forest and a uh, coral reef. And that was that was fun. So... I was so while and and I was teaching there. That's the other thing I was doing. I was teaching right. art education after school to high school students, and later adult education. I was teaching after hours to adults, painting and drawing, and I got close to a lot of the artists who worked at the museum and taught at the museum. So that was great. So you so even though my job wait drift wait wait wait. Pause for just a second. All the artists that work at the museum, they have a whole well artist I, I, team? Maybe I'm not saying that right. There are people who are brought in to do scientific illustrations. There are people uh -huh. who do artworks uh, or things related to the exhibitions, that sort of thing. Uh, I got that is, That's just a whole cool side of it I never, that never occurred to me. Uh, okay. Yeah. Steve Quinn, <laughs> who was, I don't know what exactly, he was a director in the exhibition department, was in charge of dioramas and was, uh, he had done everything. Oh, he had painted a lot of the backgrounds and oceanic birds. Uh, he helped the restoration and the uh, North American mammals exhibit all. And he had been teaching his adult drawing class at the museum for years. And I think one of the kindest things I ever had happen to me was one day he needed a substitute to teach his class. And I had been just kind of going there and drawing with everybody. He let me just sort of audit and kind of hang out and draw with people. And he asked me to uh, oh. run the class once in a while. So that was, that was, that is so cool. Really cool. And <laughs> wow. And from there, I got yeah. my own class on painting, uh, using the dioramas for painting. We ran that for a few years. So, you know, even though the creativity of my job, which you know, the, the job job, the administration job, which is mostly focused on figuring out strategic strategic ways to move, make sure the monies are spent correctly and mm. making uh, making sure the products are, are are the best thing possible with the funds available. And, you know, I, I had some project management for some some curriculum development, even though it was more admin than I had before. I had a creative thing kind of on the side, which is nice. Yeah, that's very neat that it's actually built in. Like it's on the side, but it's actually it's also in house. Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow, that's very neat. Yeah, and and then and then two years ago, about two years ago in a week probably is more likely because I know I, I just got my two year anniversary. Uh, I got an opportunity. I mean, I, I 
I, I would have stayed to the museum till I retired just because it was it's, it's a nice place. It's good. It's steady. Mm. I wasn't probably going to go get promoted much more. And, you know, it was very steady state. But a friend of mine from, and you're going to stop me when I say this, from my LARPing days. Aha, uh-huh, yes, okay. <laughs> calls me up and he says, hey, how would you like to come to work for Dwarven Forge? Uh, what? As in dwarves. Dwarven Forge. Oh, Dwarven. Dwarven. Like, okay, okay, got it. Dwarven Forge makes game tiles, game scenery. Now, I'll give you a little more background. Have you, anyone who here listening has played Dungeons & Dragons uh, has miniatures, like little miniature versions of their characters in the game. And yeah. about 25 years ago, our founder, Stefan, really was a, a passionate artist, really wanted to have a 3D visualization of what's going on for the, for the people playing the game to, to understand what's going on in the game mechanics and in the adventure and the scenery and the drama, not just a theater of the mind, which is typically what role-playing games are thought of as theater of the mind. You have a sheet of paper, yeah. statistics that are governed by the chance of the dice right. um, and your, your skill level, how long you put time invest into it. And you just imagine, you say, there's a dragon over there and everybody in their head thinks there's a dragon over there. And you're in a dungeon, and you see a dungeon in your head, and everybody probably sees a different dungeon in their head, but who cares? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what this did was, is it, we created these little like tiles. These uh, uh, they're they're scaled the size of the miniatures that people would use, and you could build out your own personalized caves, castles, dungeons, forests, mountains, all kinds of fancy scenery, and it's it's a wonderful creative place. It's filled with sculptors and painters and graphic designers and wow. artists and developers. Oh yeah, it's it's this great like core like twenty you know, something group plus you know a bunch of people who do freelance work with us. So again, I was kind of brought in as as, as more of a managerial position, but also because I can work with artists and I understand the creative process, so that helps as well. So I move from educational products to gaming products mm. and it's it's really it's it's, it's a wonderful wonderful uh place and you know, i i laugh because i think i'm like uh the the second oldest person in the office <laughs> very, very, uh, young group of people that's what i love i love that energy they're gamers at heart they're artists at heart they love what they do they're very passionate so uh that's that's been my evolution and so you can see it's been this interesting thing now meanwhile there's this whole creative thread right and the creative yeah it's just like okay so all right eric you went to art school then you started like working jobs and sometimes the museum you did some drawing with people in the room and uh you taught some classes well there was more going on and doing mm-hmm. illustrations for a children's website there was a hiatus i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not gonna fib on this one there was a period after college where I kind of, I, I went strong for about a year. I followed up my thesis with a, a trip to the Dominican Republic because my thesis was on Haiti and the San Dominican Revolution. And it was Haiti oh, wow. 1994. The embargo was in full effect. So I went to the other side of the island. I did a series of paintings on that. And, but then things kind of, things kind of got waylaid for a while. I, uh, after mm. a few years, I started going to figure drawing classes just to get back my head in the game. But I wasn't really making pictures per se and the odd thing here or there, but not much yeah. minis or stuff like that. But 
I felt it. I felt incomplete. I felt like I was cheating myself. So I got back into it in my my 30s with the illustrations for the Museum of Natural History, and I did a few other projects like that, and I was doing a bunch of drawings. I started doing animal drawings, which mm. my Facebook profile knows I do a lot of them. And then around, oh, it's been probably been about like 12, 13 years ago, one of my colleagues at the museum, Christine, her partner's father was turning 80, and the man had written this children's story called uh, Little Charlie, the Prince of Wales. And I worry <laughs> about sperm whale uh, coming of age. Oh, my God. <laughs> himself uh, saving his sisters from a terrible shark, that kind of thing. And she says to me, I, the birthday is in about five months. Do you want to do it? I said, Sure. And like two months go by and I'm like, oh, I don't have a lot of time to do this. I better talk to her about this. And it was that moment it clicked to me. It's like, you know what? I want to paint again. Mm. I'm just going to, I'm going to paint this book. So I go to her because she knows my, my graphic work for ology and all the other things I did. And I did another project with black and white work and stuff like that. This uh, curriculum called Trout in the Classroom. That was fun. Mm. <laughs> so I say to her, I, like, I want to paint this book. She says, do we have time? I was like, <laughs> I'll make time. I'm turning 40 this year. I'm going to make this book. So uh, I love it. <laughs> so I go go home and, and pretty much have, I've uh, put myself back into my graduate school days of late nighters and stuff like that. But I did it. <laughs> I did this cute little book. And it was not, it's not meant to be published wide. It was for a man's birthday present. I was paid a nice little sum of money. Not a lot, but a little yeah. sum of money. And the book looked nice. And it was enough for me to say, yeah, I, I can do that. And, you know, I learned a lot of what I should and shouldn't do. And this was a great primer. And I kind of like children's books. And then another colleague at the museum, Marriott, her sister who's a pediatrician, was a poet and a writer. And she had a children's book. And Marriott oh, wow. found that one. So I met Ruby. And uh, Ruby had this story, uh, Dromedary and Camelot, about a camel and an owl become friends in the... Mongolian desert, and I saw something in the story, and I said, "Yeah, let's let's do this." So that was a fun book, and that was actually she actually published it, and she sold it. Okay. Pediatricians practice, and we actually uh, won a uh, independent children's book award, a bronze award. Oh wow! Moonlight Awards, and uh, I actually got to do a reading at uh, Hampshire College with the. Uh, oh yeah, the Eric Carl Museum. That one? I got invited <laughs> to the Eric Carl Museum with Ruby to do a reading. And that was Okay. That was like I felt like, wow, there there's some traction here. This is this is something. This is a little independent project. And uh that was fun. And and and, and I was like, okay, uh what else? And then I started doing uh a couple commission paintings. Uh I did a painting for myself. I was doing more animal drawings. I started to get more and more back into the the art flow a bit into my life, which was, you know, lifesaver. Yeah. Raise for the soul. Can't can't diminish that. And and then I did one uh two more books. One one book and one project book that was in de- in development. The the second the third book was The Sound in the Basement. And the Sound in the Basement. <laughs> 
Uh, this is this comes from someone I knew through uh, the Association of Education Publishers. So since I was in education publishing, uh, Leanna said the good thing to do is always become a member of the association, which I did, and I did a lot mm. of work with their awards program, and I got to know a lot of people there. I became award chair mm. for years and years for this program. It was pretty amazing. I met a lot of cool people, a lot of contacts, and uh, John Miklos, who was a children's book author, wanted to publish his own story that no one was picking up. So uh, we did this fun book called A Sound in the Basement, a story about <laughs> David, who is afraid of the basement, has to go down there to find the dog food to feed his dog. He's, and he has to face all the imaginary terrors that grow out of the shadows. You know, is the laundry heap really a mummy? Is the <laughs> who's a serpent in the waiting? Is the oh, is the shadow of the tree creeping across the wall really a burglar trying to come in all that kind of fun stuff and that was that was a that was a book of restraint for me because you know the first thing i wanted to draw the mummy i want to draw the snake i want to draw the the, the burglar shadow and i realized yeah no that's 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 not right it didn't feel right to me because it's like you know kids will make their own monster out of things that's the whole point of this yeah why tell them what the monster is show them what it could come from and that's kind of what yeah. they did. so they can imagine what they think David saw. And that's that's the point of it, right? <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. It's been great to talk with Eric today. Join us for part two next week. If you want to listen to past episodes, go to our website, workingnine to thrive.com. That's with the number nine. And follow us on social media.